0: Today on The Matt Show, our big tech overlords have unveiled a new ritual for us. Apparently, now you're supposed to introduce yourself with name, pronouns, and also race. It's the cutting edge of wokeness. We'll talk about that today. Also, the prosecution's case completely collapses in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And the left has a good laugh over inflation at the grocery store, plus a teacher explains what Democrats really mean When they say that critical race theory isn't taught in schools, they're lying. Okay, not to not to spoil the ending. And finally, Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports gets the Me Too treatment. We'll talk about all that and more today on the Matt Walsh Show. So you thought maybe that our civilization would burn into ashes or explode like fireworks? You thought we'd be we would be brought trembling under the boot heel of some violent dictator. But American society won't be blessed with uh, such a dramatic ending as that. The last thing we will see before it all goes dark is the smiling face of a corporate marketing executive in a pantsuit telling us her pronouns. I mean, there are, there are elements of 1984 thrown into what we're experiencing right now, but we're actually living in a brave new world. Exhibit A, uh, Microsoft's virtual marketing conference called Ignite 2021 just concluded its three day run. Now, typically the purpose of this type of of event is to unveil new and upcoming products, get consumers excited about all the wonderful and cutting edge opportunities for consumption that Microsoft will provide in the year ahead. The goal as always is to uh, chip away at flesh and blood human existence little by little until our lives have been entirely subsumed by the screen. Microsoft and its competitors Stand basically at the entrance to the black hole, beckoning us to enter and be absorbed by it. And this this process has become increasingly literal as big tech moves uh, towards our utopian metaverse future. Now, recently, Mark Zuckerberg gave birth to Meta Platforms Incorporated, which is now the parent company of Facebook, Instagram, and subsidiaries. He's not you know he's not talking about Facebook anymore. It's Meta Platforms. That's the new company. Zuckerberg, concerned that although we spend 10 hours a day staring at our screen, we still haven't quite invested enough of ourselves into it, he wants to turn social media into a virtual reality metaverse experience. Soon we'll be able to enter into the internet, swapping our bloated, fleshy carcasses for cartoon avatars, and perhaps never returning to the real world again. You know, Zuckerberg watched The Matrix and mistook it for a how-to manual, apparently. And Microsoft isn't far behind. The star, the star attraction of the Ignite 2021 conference was its new Mesh software, its first foray into the, uh, the metaverse. Not quite as fancy as Zuckerberg's version, but it will allow you to um, attend virtual work meetings as an avatar, if for some reason you want to. There are also 3D and virtual reality components to it as well. Down the line, Microsoft hopes through Mesh that you'll be able to mesh with cyberspace, become one with it, and finally lose whatever pieces of your unique individual self still remain. But Ignite 2021 wasn't just a spectacle of new technology. It was also an opportunity to roll out groundbreaking state-of-the-art wokeness. Microsoft senior program manager Allison Wines kicked things off with a religious ritual that has become somewhat familiar on sort of the fringes of the far-left cult, but had yet to make its way into uh, into the mainstream corporate world until now. This is called a land acknowledgement, and uh, here's what it sounds like, listen.
1: Hello and welcome to Microsoft Ignite. We've got a big day ahead and lots in store for you. First, we want to acknowledge that the land where the Microsoft campus is situated was traditionally occupied by the Sammamish, the Duwamish, the Snoqualmie, the Suquamish, the Muckleshoot, the Snohomish, the Tulalip, and other Coast Salish peoples since time immemorial. A people that are still here, continuing to honor and bring to light their ancient heritage. My name is Allison Wines. I'm a Senior Program Manager in our Developer Tools division. I'm an Asian and white female with dark brown hair wearing a red sleeveless top.
0: And I'm Seth Juarez, Program Manager in the AI Platform Group. I'm a tall Hispanic male wearing a blue shirt, khaki pants, Today, we kick off two days of learning more about the latest solutions, exploring how these key innovations can empower you to do great things and connecting with peers from around the world. I am truly the most embarrassing, I didn't think it could be topped, but this is the most embarrassing and cringy thing that we've seen from Microsoft since their uh, Windows 95 rollout, which if you never, can we just play a quick clip of that? This was the Windows 95, any opportunity to play this for a minute. This, some, somehow what you just saw is more embarrassing than this. Their Windows 95 rollout of, a. Uh, there's a lot of dad dancing going on up there. Way too much of it. Looks like they're having some sort of medical emergency. And there's Bill Gates. My God. I can, actually cannot, I can't keep watching. Turn this off. Okay. I can't, that's as much of that as I can see. Actually, I, okay. The, what we just saw with Allison Wines was not quite as embarrassing, but almost, they almost got there. Now, I mean, but how could any marketing conference commence without first paying homage to the uh, honorable Muckleshoot people, all 14 of them? Obviously, you have to start with that. And this is empty posturing, of course. You'll note how Microsoft acknowledges that the land allegedly belongs to these tribes and yet chooses to still remain on that land. This is like stealing somebody's car. You know, you go and steal your neighbor Bill Smith's car. And then you make up for it by beating your chest and chanting, I acknowledge that this car belongs to Bill Smith every time you you get into it. The difference is that taking someone's car is clear and direct theft, whereas the Western acquisition of land, land that the tribes had already been killing each other over for centuries before the white man arrived, is not theft. It's conquest, and there's a difference. But from Microsoft's professed perspective, the car analogy holds up, so it doesn't make any sense. Why, then, do they bother with the land acknowledgment? I mean, it's, it's virtue signaling, yes, but what is the alleged virtue being signaled here? The virtue is white guilt, white groveling, white ab- abnegation. The problem with virtue signaling, it's, it's not really the signaling part, but the nature of the supposed virtue that is being signaled. Speaking of which, you no doubt notice that she also, after doing the land acknowledgement, she also identified herself by her race, white Asian, whatever that's supposed to mean, And other physical descriptions. This is a a verified thing now. This is what they're doing, or at least our big tech overlords want it to be a thing. Throughout the whole conference, apparently, speakers did exactly this. They identified themselves not only by pronouns, but also by their race and other qualifiers as well. Let's, uh, Let's watch a little bit more of that.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Natalie Godilla. I'm a Caucasian woman with long blonde hair, and I go by she, her. I'm a product marketing lead here at Microsoft and co-host of the podcast Security Unlocked with this guy. Yes, that would be me. Hello, everyone. I'm Nick Fillingham. I'm a Caucasian man with glasses and a beard. I go by he, him, and I'm a security evangelist here at Microsoft
3: hello everyone i'm so glad to be here with you with you all here i'm a woman of indian descent i have brown hair brown eyes and i'm wearing some uh, killer five inch heels sure, huh? <laughs> what uh,
0: first of all what is a security evangelist um also how do you not mention that you have a, a mohawk i mean you're describing your hair and your physical features the guy, this is a middle-aged, you know, 45-year-old man with a mohawk, and he doesn't think to mention that. That's, I would think that's the most relevant piece of information. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a middle-aged man with a mohawk. Leaves that out of it. That would be like if you, if you had three arms, and the only thing you said about yourself is, I'm wearing a white shirt and I have brown hair. Now, the stated reason for this ritual is that it's meant to help those who are visually impaired. But considering that a fair number of blind people have been blind from birth, You have to wonder how much help you're really giving them by identifying your hair color. What does color mean to them? And besides, is it necessary to frame your conversation in such a bizarre and intrusive way in order to satisfy a tiny minority, almost none of whom actually asked for this to begin with? Well, yes, that is indeed the leftist way. And here's another question. Why is race relevant anyway? Why do people need to know that information about the speaker in the first place? Even if we're going to introduce ourselves with physical descriptions for the benefit of the tiny percentage of people who can't see it for themselves, why should our skin color be the first thing we mention? I mean, should people on the radio be doing this too? Should the voiceover guy in a serial commercial start by identifying his race? I'm a white man with brown hair. He, him, I'm heterosexual. Please buy Cheerios. That is indeed where we're headed. And we will be pushed there by people like this at Microsoft and Facebook. The left continues, of course, to fashion itself as, as the resistance, as counterculture. But it not only has the corporate world on its side, it's not just that the corporate world is on its side. The corporate world is perhaps its primary vehicle for getting even its most radical concepts and ideas into the mainstream. Second only, maybe, to the education system. And considering that big tech is also in the process of literally fashioning a new reality for us to live in, It wants us to take us, wants to take us out of the universe and put us into the metaverse. Um, I think that fact should especially concern us. Now let's get to our five headlines. During the COVID-19 era, tech support scams have surged to the top of the list of internet scam threats. Tech support scams are attacks that rely on fear, uncertainty and doubt. They're designed to trick you into believing something is wrong, and they seek to steal your personal information, tap your bank account, or install dangerous software on your device. Just one of the many threats you face on the internet. A lot of bad, a lot of bad actors out there, um, and that's why it's so important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives every day. Because every day we do put our information at risk on the internet. In an instant, a cybercriminal could harm what's yours, your finances, your credit. That's why it's so good that there's LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of a wide range of threats. Like, for example, if your information is for sale on the dark web, things that um, you wouldn't see if you were monitoring your credit score or monitoring your bank account. Um, You're not gonna know about many of the other threats that are out there. And if something does happen and and your identity is compromised, well, LifeLock has identity restoration specialists on staff who can help you with that as well. If they detect your information, they will send you an alert. Nobody can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can keep what's yours with LifeLock Identity Theft Protection. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year by going to lifelock.com slash Walsh. That's lifelock.com slash Walsh for 25% off. Uh, you know, I'm still a little bit uh, shaken and overcoming some trauma that I experienced last night. Um, and there, there are moments in life where you, you learn lessons and you learn them the hard way hard sometimes. And that happened to me last night. I was, uh, you know, I was with my wife. We were in the kitchen, just talking, having a nice conversation, as you do in the kitchen. I pulled out um, my bottle of Sam Houston 15-year bourbon, which is uh, it's premium bourbon. It's very, very good. Not quite good enough to justify the expense. I'll say that. Like it's a, it's a really good B plus A minus bourbon. Uh, but it had a price point of an A plus bourbon, and it wasn't quite. But it's still, it's still very good. That's, that's the point. You know, premium, really good bourbon. And um, and uh, you know, they make they make a batch of like six bottles, right? And so it's also hard to find. And I was and I was proud of it. And I was you know, I, I poured some, and then I said to my wife, "Do you want you want you want some of this? You want to try some of this?" So very generous on my part to begin with that I'm that I'm going to share it. And she was drinking some tea at the time, but she said, "Oh yeah, sure, pour me a little bit." And I did, and I handed it to her. And she took that glass and dumped it into the tea. And I stood there. I, I This is a moment where I could say li- I was literally shaking. I, I couldn't believe what I just witnessed in front of my own eyes. This would be like if we were at an art museum looking at the Mona Lisa, and my wife pulled out crayons and started coloring over top of it. And I said, what, what, how, why would you do that? What are you doing? You don't put that in tea. She said, oh, I wanted to make a hot toddy. I said, you want to make a hot toddy? Let me, you make all the hot toddies you want. I'll go out and buy you some Evan Williams bourbon for $22. Okay. That's, that's what they call a rail bourbon. You go, you go all the way to the bottom rung and that's where you pull out the stuff to make your hot toddies. This is a top rung bourbon. You don't do that. And then you know what she did? She started laughing. It's like I married the Joker. Okay, this this chaos had been brought into our home. I'm psychologically, I'm in I'm in psychological and emotional turmoil, and she's laughing about it. Tr- literally unbelievable. This is this is like, it's like if I, I you know I I can't even think of a compare. It's like you bring home a one hundred dollar cut of of, of sirloin and you know then and then and then chop it into pieces and cook it well done and serve it in a fajita now I'm, now i can't i can't bring i can't bring fancy bourbon into the house that's for sure what if i had like a bo- bottle of pappy 23 that for some reason i spent 5000 dollars on and then i come home and the whole bottle sitting there on the counter empty and my wife says oh i i made a bourbon bunt cake And you know people, and and uh, I did put this on Twitter, of course, to shame her publicly, as was my duty. And people said, "Well, this is what you get for sharing bourbon with your wife." And but here's the thing, you know, don't victim blame me. My wife usually is a, is an appreciator of whiskey. She'll drink whiskey straight. That's what made this so gratuitous and egregious. But no more. That's not going to happen again. Okay. Um, so that was headline number one. I think the most important thing. We'll go to number two. The uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial continues. Yesterday, the prosecution. Now, this is the prosecution. Okay, remember that. They had Richie McGinnis uh, on on the stand. He's a Daily Caller reporter who witnessed and filmed what happened that night. There, there were not a lot of, uh, if, if we recall, during this in Kenosha and the, the riots all across the country in 2020, um, there were plenty of mainstream media reporters on the scene, but uh, they didn't they didn't see a lot of the violence and chaos going on because they were focused entirely on the police. But Richard McGinnis is one of the reporters, one of the real reporter on the scene, capturing what was happening, and um, and he was a witness to what happened with Kyle Rittenhouse, and so he was called in by the prosecution. And once again, keep in mind this is the prosecution's witness, and let's hear first. I think we have a couple of clips from him. Um, he says first. We'll play clip number two where he talks about the sequence of events and what led up to it. Here it is.
3: The sequence of the folks that were involved in this running as we've seen in many other videos is Mr. Rittenhouse is uh, in front. Mr. Rosenbaum is running after him and you are behind Mr. Rosenbaum. Is that fair to say? Uh, Yes. How far back from Mr. Rosenbaum were you as the as as the the pursuit went through the car source parking lot?
4: Um, Well, it's hard to say because I kind of caught up to them. Um, I was running a bit faster and so uh, at the time, initially, I was probably 30 feet back when, the first, when everybody first started running, but then by the time I arrived in the lot, I was 15 feet.
3: And you continued to be behind Mr. Rosenbaum at the time that the defendant shot
4: and killed him, correct? Um, I did alter my trajectory a little bit um, when I saw Mr. Rittenhouse turn around and saw Mr. Rosenbaum
0: um, lunging for the front portion of the rifle.
3: Let me stop you there for a second.
0: Yeah, I bet you, I bet you want to stop him there. So Rosenbaum, the victim, quote unquote. This is this is the uh, the the man that the prosecution wants to portray as the victim. You have your own witness on the stand saying that 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 the quote unquote victim lunged for the rifle of Kyle Rittenhouse. The the defense has not even presented its case yet, and already the prosecution case has fallen apart. And it got worse from there. Uh, there was this moment, which was a, a dagger for the prosecution. Only they're, they're stabbing themselves. Okay, this is them stabbing themselves with the dagger. Um, and here, just watch this exchange. It's pretty incredible. And you've already established that
3: after the shooting, Mr. Rosenbaum never says a word. Correct. Correct. You don't know, as you sit here today, what Mr. Rosenbaum was thinking, do you? You mean at the time of the shooting? Yes, or at uh, any point in his life. I mean, you have no idea what Mr. Rosenbaum was ever thinking at any point in his life. You have never been inside his head. You never met him before.
4: You don't. Know. I've never even. I've never exchanged words with him. If that's what your question is.
3: So your interpretation of what he was trying to do, or what he was intending to do, or anything along those lines, is complete guesswork, isn't
4: it? Um, well, he said "f you," and then he reached for the weapon.
0: Kay. Let's talk about that. My God, that's, um, that is one of those, that's like one of those moments that you see in a, in a, in a trial in a TV show or a movie. Um, you know, the only, the only thing you would add in, if this was in a movie, then that would have, there would have been gasps and everything in the, in the, um, among the people there in the courtroom to add a little bit of dramatic flair into it. But it is a gasp moment where, uh, your, your case just falls apart on the stand. So you have the quote-unquote victim saying out loud, you know, stating his violent intentions out loud. You have him lunging for the weapon. And I have to keep emphasizing that these are the witnesses the prosecution is bringing up. We haven't even, we haven't even heard from the defense's witnesses yet. There's, there's simply no case here. We have video evidence, which should put an end to it right there, because we can all see what happened. Certainly, we had all along, we had one of the the shootings on video, and you could very clearly see that Kyle Rittenhouse is on the ground, and then he's got this mob of violent people who are about to pounce on him. And then we had most of the other shooting on the video, and then we find out later that the feds had the rest of of that video. They didn't tell us about it, and we didn't see it until right now. And on top of the video evidence, we also now have eyewitnesses, the prosecution's eyewitnesses, the state's eyewitnesses, who uh, are, are painting a picture of events that entirely vindicates Kyle Rittenhouse. So when you see this, and you listen to what these witnesses have to say, and you watch the video, and you listen to the, the state's opening arguments and everything that they presented before the trial and during the trial so far. And you see that they they just have no case at all against this guy. There is nothing there. Now, does that mean that Rittenhouse will actually walk? No, because you never know what a jury will do. And all it really takes is one Antifa sympathizer on that on that jury which there could very easily be, or more than one. It only takes one BLM sympathizer. There could very easily be one or more than one. But uh, chances are, Kyle Rittenhouse, certainly he deserves to walk, and I would say chances are that he actually does. You know, because this is so incontrovertible, it's so unavoidable, the facts are right there. As far as self-defense claims go, This is about as straightforward and simple as it gets. There are times when self-defense claims are a little bit more complicated. There can obviously be gray areas in situations like this, but here there is not. And that's why all along, the people who are calling for Kyle Rittenhouse's head, they're not really talking about the shootings themselves. What you hear, and this is inc- including the prosecution's case, what what they keep going back to, and certainly what you hear online all the time with the outrage outraged mob online saying Kyle Rittenhouse should be in jail, he should be executed, all these things. You know, people who are otherwise are very much opposed to uh, supposedly opposed to the death penalty, but in this case they'll make they'll make an exception for Kyle Rittenhouse because he's white. Um. But the, what they keep saying is, well, he shouldn't have been there to begin with. He 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 crossed state lines. So what? What difference does that make? That so you cross state lines and now you don't have a right to self-defense anymore? I, I live in Tennessee. If I go to Virginia and someone tries to kill me, I can't shoot them because I crossed state lines? Coming, by the way, from people who don't care about, about lines. They say that lines are borders, boundaries. These are imaginary boundaries. They say there's no significance to the boundary separating the United States from Mexico. And anybody who lives south of our, of our southern border, they have every right to come here and enjoy all of the freedoms and liberties and entitlements that we enjoy as American citizens, including the right to vote. And now even uh, we're going to be paying off, you know, giving out $450,000 checks for the Biden administration to these immigrants as well. So they'll say that's fine because the border is imaginary. And yet the border separating a state, one state from another. Is this this like this magical boundary? And once you cross it, if you don't belong to that state, you have no right to self-defense. That's the claim. Well, of course, that's a claim for people who have no principles whatsoever. They feel no need to be honest. They feel no obligation to the truth whatsoever. Um, And then as far as him, uh, he wasn't supposed to be there. Nobody was supposed to be there. Like nothing, none of the events in Kenosha that night should have been occurring. You had mobs of people burning down the city. None of that should have been happening. So, at worst, you would say Kyle Rittenhouse, just like the other fifty thousand people, didn't shouldn't have been there. Rosenbaum, the victim, shouldn't have been there. Um, that's at worst. Like that's the worst thing you could say about Kyle, Kyle Rittenhouse. But I wouldn't even really agree with that because he worked in Kenosha. So that, was, that was his community as well. As someone who spent a lot of time there. He was helping to clean up graffiti earlier in the day. He actually cared about the community. And he felt an obligation to go there and, uh, and do what law enforcement would not do. And when law enforcement refuses to do its job or is not allowed to do its job or some combination of the two, then you're gonna have some citizens who feel called to step in and fill that gap. And that's what Kyle House did. But whether he should or should not have done that, whether he should or should not have been there, whatever that means, he still has a basic right to self-defense. And that's very clear. So then you have to start asking yourself, considering that there's no case at all here, and the state knows that they have no case, Okay, they're not crazy. They know there's no case here. There's a reason why they had to bring uh, Richie McGinnis up. Because they don't have anybody else. So then you you really have to ask, what what are they trying to achieve here? You have to start asking yourself, do they want more riots? Is that what this is about? Because you're going to get them. Once he's exonerated, which he he probably will be, you're going to have mass riots again in Kenosha. Antifa and BLM, they've already promised that. They've stated that ahead of time. If you don't convict this guy, we're going to riot. They are trying to coax a guilty verdict just like they did with uh, Derek Chauvin. By threatening violence and implicitly threatening it against the jurors as well if they don't get what they want. Implicitly and also in some cases explicitly. So is that the point in the end? The uh, the powers that be here do they do they want more riots and more chaos in the streets? You really have to start wondering about that. I mean, you could also theorize the other way and say that they well they're trying to appease the mob and that's the reason they arrested and charged them to begin with. But they would also have to know that this appeasement is very temporary. I mean, there would have been additional rioting had they never charged him at all. But that would have all happened back last summer when when they were rioting anyway. So they could have said right then, look, there's no case here. This is self-defense. We're not going to charge him. Uh, The left would have been very upset about it. There would have been, you know, it would would have put some more literal fuel on the fire. But it's a fire that was already burning at that point. And we would have all long since moved on by now. Now, what you've guaranteed once he's exonerated is that you're going to have mass rioting along the lines of what we saw last summer, if not worse. Is that the intention? Is that what they actually want? Again, you have, to, you have to really wonder. Okay, let's move on to this. We keep hearing that critical race theory isn't being taught in schools. This is what we heard in Virginia. This is the case that Terry McAuliffe makes. This is what the media keeps saying. Critical race theory, they, some, sometimes they say it doesn't exist. It's a, it's a boogeyman invented uh, by the right, which is which is a problem because there have been actual books written with critical race theory in the title by the people who came up with this theory and are promoting it. But even if it exists, what we're told is it's not taught in schools. And the thing is, that's true in a certain way. It's true, but It's uh, sometimes you can lie while telling the truth. You can tell the truth in a way that is intentionally misleading. And here we have a public school teacher in Indiana explaining what it really means when they say that critical race theory isn't taught in schools.
2: Let's listen to that. I'm the science coach and admin in the largest public school district in Indiana. I'm in dozens of classrooms a week, so I see exactly what we're teaching our students. When we tell you that schools aren't teaching critical race theory, that it's nowhere in our standards, that's misdirection. We don't have the quotes and theories as state standards, per se. We do have critical race theory in how we teach. We tell our teachers to treat students differently based on color. We tell our students that every problem is a result of white men, and that everything Western civilization built is racist, capitalism as a tool of white supremacy. Those are straight out of Kimberly Crenshaw's main points, verbatim, in critical race theory, the writings that formed the movement. This is in math, history, science, English, the arts, and it's not slowing down. If students of color have lower reading scores, it's because of inequity. Therefore, we take from the white students and give to the color students. That's Richard Delgado, straight out of CRT and introduction. All teaching is political, with reality and facts taking the back seat. That's Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, who outlined how she saw critical race theory fleshed out in public schools in 1995. When schools tell you that we aren't teaching critical race theory, it means one thing. Go away and look into our affairs no further. It isn't about transparency. It isn't about cultural relevance. It's race essentialism painted to look like the district cares about students of color. We call it anti-racism, so you feel bad if you disagree with our segregationist pedagogy. It's taking advantage of kids' vulnerability and parents' inactivity to preen over social snake oil schemes designed to create division. Parents, when we tell you critical race theory isn't taught in our schools, we're lying. Keep looking.
0: Well, he lays it out right there, Um, and that's... Like, it's just like if, if, uh, if they claim, you know, when, when we say that the public schools are leftist and that there's leftism, you know, in the broadest sense in the public school system. Well, they could say, well, we, we don't teach leftism. Look at our curriculum. Nowhere does it say the, the term leftist or leftism. Oh, you silly parents. Well, you think your kid is going to a leftism 101 class? No, that's obviously not what's happening. In fact, I wouldn't object to that necessarily. I mean, in theory, I wouldn't object to that, to having a class on the subject of modern-day leftism. I wouldn't even necessarily, in theory, object to a class on critical race theory, because I think it is something that, unfortunately, our kids need to know about. Now, I wouldn't trust the average public school teacher to teach it, but kids are going to get to a certain age where you do have to teach them about this. It's a good thing to teach them about it, about the subject, just like they should learn about Marxism and communism. You want them to learn about those things. It's the people who are uh, trying to indoctrinate kids into these worldviews that don't want the kids taught about the worldview. And that should tell you what you need to know. But that's not what's happening. So treating treating these things as a subject and saying, here's this worldview that exists. Here's this idea, this system of thought. Uh, Here's what it what it teaches. There you go, presenting the information. That could be a good thing. I mean, all all of the most insidious worldviews, the wider spread that they are, the the more that I think we need to, uh, it's good for us to know what they are and, and be taught about them. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is much, much worse than that. As the teacher just explained. Instead, it's the assumptions of critical race theory are embedded into everything the kids are taught. So this is a big, you know, this is a this is a red herring. This is misdirection, it's the sleight of hand trick where they, you know, they hand you the curriculum and they say, see, look at the curriculum. You'll say, nowhere on this curriculum does it say critical race theory. Yeah, it's not being taught. What they fail to mention is that in every single one of those subjects on that curriculum, all of those subjects are built around and upon the the assumptions of critical race theory. That white people are inherently racist, that um, all of our historical ills and all the the, the historical evils are all the result of of white people and Western expansion, Um, that it's, it's not even possible to be racist against white people because racism equals is is whatever, prejudice plus power. Kids are taught all of that. Where else are they getting this stuff from? Yeah, they're getting it from the media, they're getting it from social media, from the internet, but um, they're getting it from a lot of places, but they're certainly getting it from the schools as well. And the fact that they are told these things and yet are not told that this is critical race theory, that's precisely the problem. Again, I would, have no, I, think it, I would have no problem in theory with a kid being told, hey, there's this thing called critical race theory. And according to critical race theory, what the critical race theory teaches is that if you're white, you're inherently racist. And that if a black person comes up to you and says they hate you because you're white, you are not a victim of racism because they can't be racist against you. That's what critical race theory teaches. That's a good thing for people to be told because then they can say, oh, well, okay, well, that, so that's a theory I don't ascribe to. It sounds like a pretty horrible theory. Remember the word theory, you know, it's also important to remember. The word theory, when used in a scientific context, it doesn't just mean, a, a you know, a hypothesis or a guess. A theory, uh, like the the quote unquote theory of gravity, right? It's a system for explaining what you see in the physical world. That's what a theory is in science. Uh, we talk about the theory of evolution, right? Or, you know, the, the germ theory of disease. It's a system for explaining and understanding what you're observing in the physical world. Critical race theory positions itself as as, that, as a theory in that way. It's, it's a system of explaining and understanding what we, not what we see in the physical world, but what we, what we see in human society. but it's a bad system. It's it's an evil system. It's a sinister system. All right, what else we got here? So the word milk was trending on Twitter yesterday. If you spent any time on Twitter, uh, if you make that mistake, then you you may have noticed that, that the word milk was trending. And uh, you you click on it, you come to find out it's because a bunch of media people, a bunch of blue checks on Twitter, Democrats are laughing hysterically about this segment on CNN And it's one of the only times you'll see real reporting on CNN. And, of course, the left hated this. They were mad about it. The the, the one occasion in the last year of CNN doing real reporting left, they were not fans of it. And this features a a large family that buys 12 gallons of milk a week. And they're talking about how, as a large family, where they have to buy lots of groceries, how inflation has affected them. But the left, they thought this was hilarious. You know, lots of dunking on this, lots of uh, verified media people finding it very funny. Who drinks 12 gallons of milk, lol? Well, let's, some people do. Some families do. And uh, just like this family. Let's watch.
4: And the other thing that inflation is affecting right now is food prices. These are things that you have to buy. So I went to Kennedale, Texas to go shopping with a family to talk about what this actually means to live in America right now.
1: All right, let's go tackle this.
4: What does inflation mean for American families? This is the story of the Stotlers' weekly shop.
1: Good to see you guys. Good to see you.
4: We have
3: uh, two biological kids, and then my wife and I have a big heart for adoption, so we adopted a sibling group of two, then three, then one, and then we have a,
4: uh, a kid living with us right now who's uh, kind of in a foster situation. It feels like money isn't going as far as it used to.
1: Okay. Let's see what we can do. I think probably in June, it was about a dollar was worth a dollar. So now that dollar is worth about 70 cents. All right. Now we're moving on to dairy, which is right there. We started seeing everything going up. Grocery prices went up. A gallon of milk was $1.99. Now it's 2 Well, when you buy 12 gallons a week times four weeks, you know, you're t- that's a lot of money. That's what I'm talking about. Thanks, brother.
0: Yeah. Um- almost everything you need to know about the modern left can be summed up in the reaction to, to that report, which again was one of it was, it was outrage at CNN for reporting on this at all. And also mockery of this family for drinking 12 gallons of milk a week and finding it very, very funny and hilarious. Um, and because these are all childless people or they come from, or, you know, they were, they were growing up. They were single children. And, um, you know, want one, one child homes and now they don't have any children. And so what it's like to have a big family, it's totally foreign and alien to them. They look at I come from a relatively large family. I've got five brothers and sisters, which there was a time in uh, Western civilization where that wouldn't even qualified as a big family. But now it now it is now you're like a circus. You're like a circus act. If you have that many kids in your family, um, I'm almost at that level now. We only have four kids. And we go places, and, and people look at us and say, "Wow, all those kids! You know, it's really got your hands full. I can't believe it. it's four kids. What are you talking about? This is not one of you know. My my sister has ten kids. Okay, this is in my in my family. This is nothing. We're we're starter level in terms of the size of the family. But that's how they see big families. They see big families as uh, as a funny um, sideshow act, and they look on it with a mixture of mockery and also disgust. And so to them, the trials and tribulations of you know a big family, it's it's funny it's and it's also irrelevant to their lives. Yeah that that adds up. I mean, this is also family. how did they how do they end up with nine kids? Well, they had a, you know two or three kids of their own and then they adopted kids. And you know they not only that, but they adopted whole you know families of kids rather than rather than breaking up uh, siblings, which is what can happen in the adoption system. It's very tragic. They brought in all the siblings. So you would think, or I guess you wouldn't think, but what what ought to you know what we ought to have is is immense amount of respect for that. And so, yeah, when you've got a large family and you're not rich. Um, The fact that prices on things like milk have been skyrocketing, that can be be devastating because you have to buy food. That's an actual need. And yeah, anyone who actually has a kid or certainly more than one kid knows that they can go through a lot of milk. I mean, even with four kids, I'm not sure how much milk we go through, but it's it's a lot more than you would think. Um, Kids just run through that stuff. They drink a lot of milk. You've got yeah. They eat a lot of cereal. But to the left, it's all quite funny. And um, and now and now, what they've decided? What they're they're treating the inflation story as some sort of like conspiracy theory. And so they were online yesterday trying to debunk the idea that there's inflation. But once again, if you're a real person and you go shopping and you go to the grocery store, especially if you're a middle class family, and the budget's pretty tight. There is no escaping the reality here. I'm able to hide from it a little bit because my wife does most of the grocery shopping. But even before this inflation kicked in, anytime I was enlisted to go to the grocery shopping, it's, it's, all, it's always a, a little bit of a shock to the system to see how expensive all this stuff actually is. And now even more so. All right. We will uh, jump ahead now into our comment section.
1: Do you know their name?
4: Sweet baby gang.
0: Nick Burden says, is there a way I can support The Daily Wire without purchasing a subscription? I fully believe in what the DW is doing. Last year, I was a little bit of a leftist, but thanks to Matt and Ben, um, I'm converted. I want to support the DW, though I don't think I would ever actually use a subscription. Well, you can send me cash directly. Just put it in an envelope and send it right to me. Um, no, just kidding. Don't do that. Well, get, just get the subscription. That's what you can do. All right? Be, be a part. Be a team player. Um, a body in progress says, Matt, you acknowledge that humanity needs to see and interact with each other. Then you denounce speaking out loud to another human being on the phone in favor of texting. I much prefer actually talking to someone over texting him or her. Okay. But this is not, you know, it's not like talking on the phone is some ancient traditional form of communication. I think the phone is part of this severing of human connections. It's part of the problem. It began this process. And it's just, it's not the same for me. I don't know. You either, you either understand it or you don't. And there are some people who they love talking on the phone. I cannot understand that at all. But I can tell you I am not alone. And for people like me talking on the phone, I don't know how else to put it other than it is it is physically almost painful to talk on the phone to somebody. And it's hard to explain exactly why. I think I, I explained it a little bit yesterday because it's it's conversation devoid of body language. You know, a lot of the, you know, they say whatever percent, just 70, 80, 90% of human communication is through body language and other, and other nonverbal signals we send to each other. Well, you're taking that out of it completely and yet still trying to have a conversation, now, at least through text message. You're just, you're sending a message. You have a point that you want to make, you send it, and that's it. But trying to carry on a conversation without any of those other signals is for me deeply uncomfortable. And it adds a certain sort of intensity to it. And then there's also the problem of, as I said, there's no room for pauses. And if you think about it, when you're sitting like in your living room with somebody, or like when I was in the, the kitchen with my wife last night talking to her, until she traumatized me by wasting the whiskey, you know, you're you're talking and then and then there's a A little bit of a pause, and then you talk some more, and that's okay. But with a a phone conversation, you're not not allowed to do that, and that's the problem. All right. Um, Alina says, Matt, I was not here when SBG started. What happened? Explaining this new movement I'm involved in to my other teenage friends is interesting. But you don't explain it. That's the first rule of the movement. This is not like Fight Club, where first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. We talk about the, the Sweet Baby Gang. We talk about it all the time, and I'm told that I talk about it too much. We just don't talk about its origins. That's what we don't do. As far as anyone is concerned, the Sweet Baby Gang has always been here and will always be here. That's the mythology that we're building, okay? Um, Lucky says, can Matt make a daily cancellation for people who can't parallel park? I don't think it's as vital as merging. I just need a better explanation than the one from my parents. You know, yeah, parallel parking. uh, Clearly, there are so many bad drivers out there and much of driving is very simple. I mean, you do it. Un- much of what you do when you're driving, you're doing unconsciously. That's how simple and easy it is. And uh, most people in the world are not able to even do that. Parallel parking actually involves conscious engagement, and it's a little bit more complicated. So, if the average person can't handle something like merging or just driving in one lane on the highway, um, how much how much worse is it going to be when they try to parallel park? So that, that's true. A lot of most people can't parallel park. Um, I am the fantastic parallel parker. I take Great pride in that. Um, any t- even though I, even though I've, I've successfully parallel parked many times, every time I do, I have to brag to my wife about it. You know, that's just part, that's part of the deal. It's part of being a man. Um, but it's also not. You know, I don't really care if you're not a good parallel parker. That that doesn't bother me. You're not, not going to kill anybody from doing it the wrong way. And if you're not comfortable with it, then just don't parallel park. Usually you can find some other parking situation and you can kind of avoid it, especially if you don't live in the city. I mean, if you don't live in the city, you can go your whole life and never have to parallel park. Uh, whereas merging is something that if you drive, you have to do pr- um, probably every day. And if you do it wrong, this is more than a fender bender situation. You're going to kill somebody. And that's why that should be. But I remember when I, I don't know if, if this is how it still works. When I took the driving exam, the the grand finale of the driving exam, the actual physical driving exam where you're sitting in there with the person with the clipboard. Um, And it seems I don't do, they still do driving exams. The evidence on the road would seem to indicate that they don't. But when I was, you know, 16, you take the driving exam and parallel parking was the grand finale. It was the main thing you had to execute on the driving exam. They had to make sure you could do a three point turn that you knew how to stop at a stop sign and uh, and then can you parallel park? And that's it. That's all they did. No, take that out of it again. You could go your whole life and never have to do it, depending on where you live. Take that out of it and put merging in the driving exam. Um, although that is maybe somewhere where maybe you do the merging in a virtual reality metaverse situation, uh, so that you know we're not losing driving instructors left and right to car accidents. Uh, let's see what else do we got. Um, Steve says, come on, man. Cherry, that's so last decade. Let's go orange for Kool-Aid. Or could I get behind grape, I suppose? The Gray Rooster says, grape is the best Kool-Aid flavor. There's no denying this universal absolute truth. Another guy says, please grant unto us thy loving cherry Kool-Aid, holy sweet father. Lots of comments giving me your favorite Kool-Aid flavor. Just want to clarify one thing. You guys do realize what I was inferring is that I'm going to be poisoning the Kool-Aid and you're all going to die. Just, just check it. And if you're on board for that, then, then great. Um. And finally, Flores Zaza says, Matt, didn't they shut down Nashville over a dusting of snow last winter? Uh, yeah, they, they effectively shut down. No, in fact, what they did when we got a little bit of snow is, uh, this is the other thing I had. This is, this is when I first became acquainted with Nashville driving because I got here, you know, only a couple months before we got that, I guess, what is a once in a generation kind of ice snowstorm where it snowed for a week. And the Nashville strategy with snow removal is to not do it. And so, what they say here is if you get snow on, on the highway, if you get it on your road, then um, that's it. You just have snow. And that's, they're going to wait for the sun to take care of it, even if it takes two weeks. But other than that, every, other than everything that happens on the road, I do love it here in Nashville, just to clarify. Now, as you may or may not be aware, the Daily Wire filed a lawsuit against the federal government yesterday. We talked about that on the show. Why? Because in an authoritarian anti-American move, the Biden administration has ordered that large employers must require their employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19 or submit to regular testing. Daily Wire's lawsuit was filed by um, the Dillon Law Group and uh, Alliance Defending Freedom in the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Sixth Circuit. The lawsuit alleges that the Biden administration lacks constitutional and statutory authority to issue the employer mandate and that the mandate failed to meet the requirements for issuing a rule taking effect immediately about the normal process of considering public comments. This mandate is absolutely unconstitutional and we're not standing for it here at The Daily Wire. We're not gonna simply complain about it but then go along with it uh, because then the complaints mean nothing at all. Our employees deserve to keep their medical history private, have autonomy over their own bodies and honor any of their religious beliefs. We stand with our employees' rights as we do um, with the rights of every single American. The Biden administration has warned that any companies that do not comply with this federal overreach could be fined as much as $136,000 per violation, which is why we need your help. If you're not a member yet, please consider joining us today. If you um, go to dailywire.com slash subscribe right now, enter code DO NOT COMPLY at checkout, you'll receive 25% off your membership. You can be part of the team and you can help us in our fight against this unconstitutional mandate. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. So Dave Portnoy, who's the founder of Barstool Sports, was, you might say, destined for a Me Too movement, uh, moment rather. He's a a single man. He's famous, wealthy, most crucially, not a leftist. And I'm not sure what his political philosophy is or if he has one, but it's clear at least that he's far from woke by the current standard. Um, And it's likely this last fact that compelled Julia Black, who's a reporter for Business Insider, to embark on a quest to uncover a Portnoy sex assault scandal one way or another. Now, previous attempts had been made to cancel Portnoy for jokes he'd said in years past before jokes became illegal and other comments and things that he made. But those cancel campaigns were easily swatted away. Those sorts of cancelings can always be diffused if the target has any semblance of a spine, a modicum of self-respect. For those sorts of things, you can always just ignore them, refuse to bend to them, and you'll be fine. But a Me Too thing, a Me Too onslaught is a different beast entirely. And that's why Julia Black spent, as she admits herself, eight months trying to organize one for Dave Portnoy. Now, as it turns out, it would seem that there wasn't really a Portnoy sex assault scandal to be uncovered. Much to the chagrin of Julia Black and Business Insider, based on the story, Portnoy has never raped anyone. You know, he's never raped anyone, but if the allegations are true, he has had at least a few weird and uncomfortable liaisons. that's enough to justify a 4,000-word expose with a scary-sounding headline. The headline is, I was literally screaming in pain. Young women say they met Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy for sex, and it turned violent and humiliating. Now, if you want to read the rest, you have to become a Business Insider subscriber. But don't worry, senior politics reporter Grace Panetta tweeted hours after the article was published that Business Insider is offering a great discount on premium subscriptions. Pay now, and you can read all about the Dave Portnoy allegations. Dave Portnoy is a dangerous sex criminal. Become a subscriber and read more about it. Of course, if you don't want to pay, you can share the article anyway with its screaming headline, and that'll do just fine as well, and lots of people did that. Now, personally, I wasn't interested in either of those options, so I accessed the article without paying. I have my ways. And um, promptly discovered that it is one of the more transparent hit pieces that we've seen published on the internet in quite some time. It begins with a story of Madison, 20 years old, who messaged Portnoy on Instagram last summer. And some of the details here are going to be a little bit graphic, warning you ahead of time, Uh, but it's necessary to understand the story here. So they quickly began talking about sex and she was happy to reveal that she has a quote rape fantasy where I don't have any control of what's going on, unquote. But Madison did make sure to stipulate that she has to be pretty comfortable with a guide before she'll act out her rape fantasies with him. And shortly after this exchange, she boarded a flight to come visit Portnoy at his mansion in Nantucket. Now, Madison made it to his house in the afternoon. Um, She complains that Portnoy was boring and grumpy. Now, it's not often that a victim takes the time to lodge these kinds of complaints. In the case of an actual sexual assault, the assailant's grumpiness is hardly worth mentioning. So the fact that those details are added already makes you a little bit suspicious. After dinner, having known Portnoy in person for about three hours, she began performing oral sex on him. He filmed it. Uh, she did not object. Now, she says now that she didn't want him to film it, but uh, she was too scared to tell him to stop. And that's when things escalated, she says. Quoting now from the article, it says, from there, things escalated until, as Madison put it, quote, I felt like I was just a human sex doll. Two days later, Madison texted a close friend, quote, It was so rough that I felt like I was being raped. He videotaped me and spit in my mouth and choked me so hard I couldn't breathe. She wrote in messages viewed by Insider. And it hurt, and I was literally screaming in pain. She recalled crying and shouting, too much, too much, it hurts. It was so painful, Madison said. I kept trying to get away, and he was like, stop running away from me, stop running away from me. But Portnoy, she said, just went harder. Now, Madison's flight home wasn't until two days later, so she slept on Portnoy's couch both nights, and they didn't have sex again. Now, Madison doesn't claim, she doesn't use the word sexually assaulted, she doesn't claim that she was raped, only that the sex was violent and humiliating. Though it would seem, by her own admission, that's exactly what she got on the plane and flew to Portnoy's house for, telling him about her rape fantasy. Next, there's a story of 19-year-old Allison who went to Portnoy's house to hook up. Here's how she recounts the events that followed. Quote, Allison recalled sitting by the pool, Portnoy offered her watermelon and water, He asked her which school she went to and which grade she was in. Allison uh, recalled that. Then she said, he got up to go inside and I was like, okay, I'll go in with you. And he was like, I didn't know it would be that easy. He leaned leaned in and started kissing me and I didn't know what to do at that point. She added, and he went upstairs and he was really aggressive. And I didn't know how to do, uh, I didn't know what to do. And we had sex and that was it. And he kicked me out. Allison said her memories were fuzzy because of her emotional distress surrounding the event. But uh, like Madison, she said Portnoy choked her. And then she goes into some other details, and she says uh, uh, that Allison does not describe what happened to her sexual assault. This is an important point. But she was still deeply disturbed by the experience. Quote, I just felt very preyed on, she said. Now, the final quote-unquote victim chronicled in the piece is Instagram influencer Ava Louise, who never had any physical contact with the Barstool CEO, but did message him a few years ago when she was 19. She told him that she, quote, wanted to be famous so bad. Didn't end up meeting him in person, but she told Business Insider that, quote, I probably would have let Dave Portnoy do whatever the hell he wanted to me because I'm like, oh my God, it's Dave Portnoy. And she's now come to believe though that Portnoy was predatory for messaging with her. So uh, we're we're left with a handful of stories, selected after a reporter reached out apparently to dozens of women Portnoy had interacted with looking for the juiciest gossip she could find. And all these stories from women with fuzzy memories, who don't allege assault, don't use that word, and who engaged apparently in consensual sex. One of these women, according to her own testimony, boarded a plane and flew to his house after telling him about her rape fantasies. She then stayed at his house for two days after the encounter that she now claims traumatized her. As for that woman, Madison, Portnoy claims that not only did she never tell him to stop, but that she never expressed any discomfort or awkwardness at all. Until he read about it for the first time in Business Insider. Here's his statement about it.
4: At no point was it not 100% consensual. At no point did she ask me to stop. At no point did either of us think something unseemly happened. There was no weirdness. After, it was totally fine, normal interaction. Sexual, 100% consensual. My lawyer's like, "Don't, don't, you know, make these blanket statements. I'm telling you now, her version of events is not true on our hookup. Just not true. Neither of us were like oh you shouldn't be doing it. it it was 100 million percent consensual what's going on in her brain i have no idea her actions outward all 100 percent normal wasn't alarmed never thought about it now after we hooked up we were hanging out more and it just became one of those situations where we disagree basically on everything from you know is it raining or sunny out is it was just oil and vinegar two people who did not get along did not see the world the same way and that is why she slept on the couch I do believe, my recollection, is she was still interested in hooking up, and I'm like, this just isn't working. Like, we don't get along. Um, Flew back. I never talked to her again. I never knew she had any issue. It's the first I heard of it, and frankly, was stunned to read and hear about it.
0: So he goes on, actually, for a a while, addressing all the allegations, and he denies them. I mean, he doesn't deny that he had sexual interactions with these women, but he denies that the story that it went exactly as they describe. You have to ask yourself whose story fits the facts better. Well, one of the facts here is that Madison stayed at his house for two days after the fact. So you would think that if she was trying to literally run away from a rapist, uh, that she wouldn't then stay at the house. Even if your flight is a few days removed, maybe you would leave and go to a hotel or something or really anything other than stay at the house. But as always with a Me Too witch hunt, the women involved in these interactions are treated as though they have no agency or willpower of their own. I mean, these are all adults, all eager and willing participants in the sexual act. In at least one case, the woman not only participated but initiated. It's not victim blaming to suggest that a woman who goes to a man's house for sex, then has sex, then continues to stay at the house after the sex, bears at least equal responsibility for the emotional or psychological toll that it takes on the participants. And I say that even though I don't deny that there is a toll. I don't even balk at a word like trauma being used to describe the emotional aftermath with something like this. They all say that they felt used and degraded, like they were treated as mere sex dolls. I have no doubt that there's truth to that assessment, but none of that equates to rape. And this is also the empty and grim reality of hookup culture. Both partners use each other. A woman with rape fantasies, quote unquote, has gotten so used to this sort of transactional sex dehumanizing and degrading on both sides that she now orients her sex life around it. She's fetishized her own degradation. The participants in hookup culture make a game of their own self-abasement. And they wake up in the morning, oftentimes, feeling exploited and exposed because that's exactly what happened. And and worse, if you're participating consensually in hookup culture, you are inviting your own exploitation, pursuing it. Again, on both sides, men and women. Now, people these days have no language to describe or understand their feelings, having rejected sexual morality in principle. And so they conclude that somehow their consent must have been violated. Even Even if it's an act that they agreed to participate in, they conclude that they had their consent violated. They say, well, I don't feel good after the fact, so I must not have chosen to do this. But they did choose it, and that's the whole tragedy of hookup culture. People choose what ultimately makes them miserable and unfulfilled. I mean, you talk to a man on uh, Instagram or whatever, and he flies you to his house to have sex with him, and you say you feel like a sex doll, well, yes, I'm sure you did feel that way, and I'm sure it's horrible to feel that way. But that's what hookup culture is. The answer to this problem is not me too, but marriage. The answer to the problem is to take the sexual act and engage in it with someone who you love and are devoted to and who you trust, someone who cares about you. Who knows your name and a lot more than your name. That's the answer to much of what um, Me Too has brought to bear. And much of the dysfunction that we see in our society today. And the answer is certainly not hit pieces like the one in Business Insider. A publication which is today, in the end, we come back around to, uh, canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and a great weekend. our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodasky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Hey
4: everybody, this is Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. You know, some people are depressed because the republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon's turned to blood. But on The Andrew Clavin Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew Clavin Show and laugh your way through the fall of the Republic with me, Andrew Clavin.